Hi, you're listening to the Hopes Podcast. I'm Kat, and I'm a podcaster for Hopes, the Huntington's Outreach Project for Education at Stanford. On this episode of the Hopes Podcast, I talked to Dawn, who took care of her partner of 35 years, Tom, throughout his battle with HD. Grief is a lot of things, but I do think that there's something special about it. Almost everyone is going to lose people that they love throughout their lives. But humans have never evolved out of grief. Researchers say that there's no evolutionary benefit to grief, but that it's more like a side effect of the interpersonal attachments that humans make, which are evolutionary beneficial. Effectively, we have evolved to love each other so strongly that regardless of grief's detriment, we can't avoid it. A neurologist at the University of Maryland named Dr. Lisa Schulman describes the grief that follows the loss of a loved one as an emotional traumatic brain injury, one so serious that it can sometimes be fatal. When it comes to the grief felt for loved ones with neurodegenerative diseases like Huntington's, that pain is prolonged beginning before death and exacerbated by the ways that HD can affect a life even before it is taken. Let's start with you just introducing yourself however you'd like for the podcast. Okay, well, I'm Dawn, and I've known about Huntington's since I met Tom in 1984. So Huntington's has kind of been you know, part of my life. And can you introduce Tom as well? Sure. Tom uh, was my life partner. I call my spousal equivalent. Uh, We met back in 1984. Big athlete. Just if he would have had the grades, as his mom would say, he would have been a pro athlete. Just good at everything, everything he did. Don and Tom met in high school. Well, I knew him in high school, but he did not know me. I actually had a friend that had a crush on him. And so we kind of high school stalked him. Um, we'd follow him around. Of course, they don't, they don't know who we are, but we would go to high school games, you know, uh, mostly basketball games and watch them play. Fast forward to 1984, Tom and Don reconnected. We were kind of out, you know, at a dance club and I saw him and kind of laughing, thinking, oh, that's that guy that my friend had a crush on. And then he asked me to dance. So we just started dating and, you know, 35 years we were together. In those early years, Tom and Don would go dancing together. They would go up to Tahoe, travel along the California coast, and enjoy spending time with their friends and family. They connected over their similarities, like their love of sports, but also their differences. Don had grown up with a dysfunctional family and had moved around a lot up until high school. Meanwhile, Tom and his family had spent their entire lives in the same house. So he was kind of a grounding person for me. It was just really weird to meet somebody who had such a stable upbringing, but little little did I know what his really upbringing was really like with Huntington's. I had asked him about um, his dad because I met his mom and there was really no talk about his dad. And I asked him, so, you know, where's your dad at? 
and I assume they were divorced. And he said, he said, no, my dad's ill and he's in a hospital and they actually weren't really even in contact with him. The family was not seeing him or visiting him. It was for the really his late stage of Huntington's. There really was no talk of, of his father. HD can manifest through many different symptoms, which generally become more severe over an individual's lifetime. Some of the most common symptoms are chorea, or involuntary movements, dystonia, or muscle rigidity, impaired posture and balance, and difficulty with speech and swallowing. Common cognitive symptoms include a lack of impulse control, emotional outbursts, a lack of emotional awareness, and difficulty focusing on tasks and learning new information. Some individuals with HD might also become more irritable, sad, or apathetic, experience insomnia, fatigue, and social withdrawal, and some may develop depression and anxiety. No two people are impacted in the exact same way, but Tom's father could have been experiencing any combination of these symptoms. One of the things that Tom told me was that when he told me that his father had Huntington's and he may inherit this, was that he wasn't ever going to have children. I didn't know much about it. I'd never seen Huntington's. There was no internet. I went to the library just to look up what Huntington's was. And it was, I'd have a picture of it had we had, you know, phones on our camera back then. But it was really just two or three sentences of, you know, progressive degenerative disease has a 50-50 chance of inheriting it from your parents um, something blah, blah may result in death. I thought, well, everyone's going to die eventually, right? Of course, HD is a lot more complicated than that. When Tom was growing up, he avoided bringing friends around the house because he didn't want people to see his father showing the physical and emotional symptoms that are characteristic of HD. Then Tom's father passed away, three years after Don and Tom had met. But as far as Don could tell, life just went on for Tom even though Don is sure that he probably had suffered some emotional scarring from his father's disease. But Tom was just such a easygoing, happy-go-lucky person. He really didn't, he didn't dwell over his upbringing or anything about, you know, his dad and that disease. At the time, Tom couldn't know if he had inherited Huntington's from his father because the gene that causes HD hadn't been discovered yet. It was still 1987, and the gene-specific DNA sequence and the mutation that caused HD weren't pinpointed until 1993. By 1998, Tom still hadn't been tested. But at a holiday party, Don learned from a mutual friend that Tom's brother had gotten a negative test. Don was surprised. Why was she hearing about this from a friend and not from the family or Tom's brother himself? And we stayed at, at Tom's mom's that night, and I wanted to know if anybody knew about him. So I asked her... I could just see the look in Tom's mom's face at the time that she knew something. And I said, do you, do you know something about Kendall? And she's crying. And I'm like, oh, my God, does, does Kendall have, have it? And she's like, no, Kendall doesn't have it. And I said, then why are you crying? And she said, well, we all this and we all that. And I'm like, what do you mean we? And she said, well, we, we just didn't know if we should tell you guys that, that Kendall was tested. And I'm like, who, who knows that he was tested? The whole family knows, right? The brothers, a sister. But Tom and I were left out of the loop. And I said, well, why didn't anybody tell us? And it was because 
they were seeing symptoms in Tom. And that made me realize this is a real thing. He may have Huntington's. I've been going from 84 to 98, really not denial, but just I don't know what to do with this information. You know, he was still playing softball and still working and doing things. It was just their family could see it, right? Because they've seen it and I had never seen it. So I really didn't know what to expect. But as the symptoms became more severe, even Don picked up on them. It was his mom's 70th birthday and we were all going to Reno to celebrate. And I must have passed the hotel or I missed the entrance. And he just had a meltdown in the car. And again, happy-go-lucky, sweetest person. And he just started banging on the, the dashboard and screaming like all kinds of profanities, right? <laughs> And I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know, because I'd missed a turn into the hotel and I turned around. I remember pulling in the parking lot and just kind of crying for a second, like, what is wrong with you? And then boom, it was just off. I don't think, you know, if he realized he did it and there was no like, I'm so sorry. It was just, just turned it off. And that was kind of the beginning of he'd snap. He would just have moments that he just, he couldn't control his emotions and just have these outbursts of anger, not violent or anything like that, but just the screaming things. You know, I remember like he was picking up all these hangers in the, in the house to throw them in the garbage. And as he's walking out with this pile of hangers that aren't in any order, all I could think about was, oh my God, when he gets to the garbage can, they're not going to fit in there. And he is going to have a meltdown. <laughs> but as difficult as it could get, Don never considered leaving Tom. She was in it for the long haul. Tom tested positive in 2003. After that, he and Don went to their first HD convention together. That was the first time I'd actually seen people with Huntington's disease. Tom had seen it, but besides his dad, I don't really think he'd, he'd really seen it. Um... And he came back from that event really shaken. I wasn't as shaken as much, um, but reality set in for me that this is what Huntington's looks like. And um, for him, it was really emotional. He just, he was really afraid he was going to become a burden. After his diagnosis, Tom stopped working, but continued to do errands and help around the house. Without work, Tom's life was lonely, so he and Don adopted a three-year-old Cocker Spaniel, who could be his companion while Don was at work. Tom and Don would travel together and with family, trying to squeeze in as many memories as possible, so that they could look back on them in the future, when travel would no longer be an option. They went on with their lives, while also trying to keep up with the progression of his symptoms. I think that was just true to form that Tom was just such an easygoing and so would do anything I asked him to when we were going through this disease. If I said, let's go see a speech therapist, he'd say, okay, let's go, let's have an occupational therapy person come over. Okay. He was really so easygoing and just willing to try anything. For the first five years, the changes were gradual. 
he'd slowly stop like eating lunch. Like I'd have to make it. And I started having to make lunch for him before I went to work, just things like that. And I'd started having to write him to-do list. Okay, Tom, you need to take your shower today, you know, pick up the dog poo, whatever. Like just, he needed a list. He needed some structure. During this period, Don's brother moved in with her and Tom and was able to help out while Don was at work and as Tom began to require more assistance. Don was able to take the occasional trip for work or with her friends because her brother or any of the number of other siblings who lived in the area could be home to look after Tom. I was able to break away from caregiving a number of times every day, basically, for work. I mean, it would be really hard right now to have to work from home and be a caregiver because it's hard to turn it off. So when you go to work, you can kind of turn it off knowing that you have somebody here. But if I was here doing my job, it would be really challenging. I say the last few years, he was pretty much bedridden, but we were able to still care for him at home. Dawn and her brother made the living room Tom's space, where he could watch his favorite sports games and TV shows. Tom was a big NCIS fan and see everything that was going on in the house. It was also a convenient place for Dawn and her brother to take care of Tom, because at this point, he needed care around the clock. We had a routine. Kind of had a little, our own little board, and uh, on the board, every time he either was fed or changed or what have you, given pills, we would mark the board. Kind of looked like a little hospital. So uh, when he woke up and he got a smoothie or you know, we changed him or if he had a BM, he got a star. So there's always little jokes about, did Tom get a star today? You know, um, <laughs> cause sometimes I'd, I'd go out or I'd be at work and I'd be worried about something. And, you know, my brother was so cute. He's like, Oh, Tom got a star today. And then he'd like, Oh, Tom got another star. So we actually would have stars up on the board and we'd put it on the calendar because sometimes you don't, you don't remember today, the next day. And when you're taking care of someone, it's very important to know when they get a star, so, you know, you could go to the board and go, did he even get a star yesterday? Because if he didn't, then I've got to increase something else, a different med or, you know, two or three days, you're calling the doctor. He had a very structured routine. Over time, Dawn picked up countless other habits that made life easier for her and Tom. One was the reclining wheelchair, which made it easier for Tom to eat when he began to have trouble swallowing. So he would kind of be more reclined, just slightly, and the food he would mull it through and then kind of swallow it. And that is what kind of worked. Another was putting a straw through a hole in the lid of any drink that Tom was having. We would take the the lids and we would like drill little holes in the lid just big enough for the straw. And Dawn also took up the habit of keeping a journal of Tom's progression. Once a month, I tried to sit down and just jot down what stage Tom was in at that month. It was really a good guide when I could go back and the doctor might say, well, when did that start? And I could be like, oh, yeah, I guess three years ago he started. At the end of the day, Dawn was just making it up as she went, taking notes from healthcare workers and friends in the HD community, and sometimes MacGyvering a solution that worked for Tom, like putting a washcloth inside a face covering for Tom to wear when necessary to prevent salivating, or putting a cutting board and a pillow at the end of his wheelchair to keep him from slipping out, and anything else Dawn and her brother could think of. I watched other people and I got advice from other people about being a caregiver and you have to take care of yourself if you are going to be a good caregiver. 
And I didn't hundred percent do everything I should have. I know when people, I'm always telling people when someone asks if they, if they can do something to help, you should take them up on it. And I, I didn't do that most of the time. I did take it. If someone specifically asked me, and this is advice that I would even give a caregiver. When you know somebody needs help or caregive, instead of just saying, what can I do or can I help? You really have to be specific because if you're specific and say, can I bring you over a meal or can I take you out for coffee? People are more willing to say yes to that than just kind of an open-ended, let me know if you need any help. I asked Dawn if she ever showed Tom how hard it could be for her. I try to keep it in check as much as I can, but it's a hard job to be a caregiver. We're not perfect. (laughs) But it can't be a struggle on the caregiver. It has to be a struggle on the actual person. So you really have to make it about the person. I asked Dawn how it affected her relationship with Tom to go from being his life partner to his caregiver on top of that. It changes differently, of course, because you're caregiving for someone. But I still had the feeling that when I saw Tom, the love for him, not not just because I was caregiving for him, but I always just had an emotional connection with him. And so when I would see him, especially when he would give that boyish smile, I, you know, I had a great connection with him. And I knew that he had a great connection with me because I could see him light up when I would come into the room. And that sounds so like, oh, God, what's wrong with you? But I knew he loved me. And that's, I think, what made doing all this worthwhile. And um, one thing early on, I remember, because caregiving is not for the faint of heart, was... I remember having to take him into the bathroom and having to wipe his butt for the first time. (laughs) Nobody wants to ever have anyone have to do that for them. And uh, I was teasing him and saying, oh my gosh, you know, I asked him, um, I said, God, will you, would you be doing this for me if I was the one ill? And, you know, he couldn't communicate that well, but one of the ways he communicated was this thumbs up he would do. And he gave me the biggest thumbs up. And right then I knew this is all worth it because I know he would do it for me. It's it's a hard job, but I know we loved each other and we did it out of love for each other. And he would have done it for me. I know he would have. He just, yeah, he was one of a kind. Around the stage in Tom's life when he was needing more care than ever, Dawn's sister sat her down. I think she wanted to make sure that I knew, like, was I going to be ready for when Tom wasn't around anymore? And I remember her saying, you know, we we just wanted to make sure that, are you preparing yourself? Because Tom may not be around for a long time or and I said, well, what what do you mean? What, What do you think a long time? And I remember her saying, well, Like, he's probably not going to be around in five years. And my response was, I hope he's not around in, like, five years. I really hope I don't have to be doing this and that he doesn't have to be living like this for five more years. 
And I really felt awful for saying that, but it's a long, it's a long job to do and to watch, to watch somebody in a body that doesn't work anymore. Caregiving aside, it's just a horrible thing to have to watch day in and day out. And so I just remember like, oh my gosh, I hope it's not going to be five more years. Then one day, Tom started wheezing after having lunch. Dawn and a nurse who was there at the time called 911. They're pretty sure he had aspirated while he was eating his lunch. Tom had aspiration pneumonia, which happens when food or other liquids get inhaled into the lungs and causes inflammation or a bacterial infection. It can be very serious for anyone who has impaired coughing ability, which is common with neurodegenerative diseases like HD, or who has an impaired immune system, which experimental research suggests might also be impacted by HD. Initially, doctors weren't sure what had happened to Tom, so he was kept at the hospital overnight. Then, a neurologist told Don that Tom was at high risk for aspirating again, and that she should consider putting him on a feeding tube. And so I was like, so if I don't do a feeding tube, what are you telling me? The doctor tells Don that without the feeding tube, Tom would be gone in two weeks, max. And I'm like, what? I mean, I had nobody there with me. So I'm thinking, what? Like, he just came in yesterday. This guy was eating perfectly fine the day before. No issues. Just boom. They sent me home to be on hospice because they really felt that this was going to be the beginning of the end for Tom. And um, I talked to his family a lot and I said, you know, I don't, you know, Tom and I really, when he was, could really talk, we never talked that much about a feeding tube, to be honest. And so I think that's another thing I would say for people is just really be clear on what the person wants. I knew that Tom wouldn't want to be kept alive that way. I knew that that wasn't the right thing for him. And I, I wanted to confirm it with his family. So they all agreed that, no, he would never want something like that. And when we were talking, Tom was so vocal that day at the hospital. He was just so like wanting to say something. I remember going over to him and saying, Tom, I know you're trying to say you don't want this feeding tube or pen tube. I know that's what you're trying to tell me. So we're not going to do it, okay? Tom and Don go home. And over time... Don sees Tom improve, even being able to eat some soft foods again. I really thought this was going to, you know, he's going to turn around. And, you know, I used to, I was telling this family, I'm going to be wheeling him into this hospital, you know, in a few weeks going, see, you know, you guys are writing him off and, and he's perfectly fine. Less than two weeks after they had left the hospital, Don asked her brother to pick up a prescription that they needed for Tom. So Don and Tom were alone in the house. And I went into the bedroom. I think I went to call my sister. And as I, I gave her a quick update, I was gone maybe five minutes. And I came back into the room. And I remember looking at Tom. And he was so peaceful looking at the TV. I'm like, oh, my God, you're finally like, you're finally nice and calm and relaxed. And he had just passed away while I was in the other room. And uh, I feel like he did that. My brother is always here. <laughs> and 
And it's like, he went on this errand and I just feel like he did it without anybody there in the room with him. And uh, so he was gone. That was a really crappy 10 days of my life, obviously, <laughs> from the pneumonia to that. But um, it was bittersweet, as a lot of people will say, when you spend that much time with someone who is ill. And so, yeah, that's was Tom's last day. Then the healthcare workers swooped in, the funeral services were arranged, and Tom left their home for the last time. It's a really weird emptiness of not having to, you know, be taking care of somebody. And at first it just, it feels weird because Tom really had never left this. He was never not here when I was here. And even weirder was the sudden emptiness in Dawn's schedule. Friends and family were calling and asking Dawn to lunch and coffee. And suddenly, she could take those invitations without having to make sure that her brother would be home to look after Tom. It's so weird. Like, you know, you don't have to make a schedule or make an appointment really to do something. Like, you can just do something. Of course, Tom will never be gone from Don's life or the lives of the people who loved him, his family and Don's family, his friends, his high school buddies, and so many more perfect strangers that Tom was known for going out of his way to help while he was still able to. Tom's presence remains in the living room where Don cared for him in his final years. And Don remains a part of the HD community, sharing her knowledge gained over decades of loving and caring for Tom with current and future caregivers. I want to really sincerely thank Dawn for sharing her story with me and listeners of A Hope's podcast. And thank you for listening, whether you're here as a caregiver to pick up some of Dawn's tips, or if you're curious about life with Huntington's disease. This is not an easy story, but it's an important one, and in many ways, a really beautiful one. I'd also like to thank the Hope's Fund for supporting the podcast and Catherine Heaney and the Hope's team for their guidance. Before I let her go, I asked Don what Tom's favorite kind of music was. He loved rock and roll, not heavy metal rock and roll, but he, he loved his rock and roll music. He was always blaring it in the car. As the other thing I used to tell him when he's driving, like, Tom, can't be having that music on so loud. You're not going to be able to hear anything. I've been Kat Ferguson. Thank you again for listening.
Desert, desolate coast, no, no ocean.